1 Samuel chapter 1, hear the word of the Lord. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, 
our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In 2010, you may recall that there was a piece of legislation passed by our Congress, the 111th Congress, uh, called the Patient Protection and uh, Affordable Care Act. The opponents derisively called the act Obamacare, and then the proponents of it took that up as their mantle, and they called it Obamacare, and eventually President Obama began to call it that as well. And it was the, the largest piece of legislation on uh, re- regarding, uh, regarding health care since Medicare and Medicaid were passed in 1965. But it was not without controversy. And immediately the opponents began organizing to try to take this down. And there's a little slip of paper uh, that's online and you can see it. And uh, they wrote about some ideas in a pencil or pen, uh, some ideas about how to undo this legislation that they opposed. And the last thing they came up with became a mantra. And they circled this little uh, handwritten mantra and it was repeal and replace. Repeal and replace. I'm using this as an illustration to help you understand what Samuel is about. Because that is the, the pattern of Samuel. Repeal and replace. Repeal and replace. Repeal and replace. Or we could probably better say reject and replace. And this happens three times through this book of what we call 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. It's replace, or rather reject and replace. The first cycle of that is that the Lord rejects Eli the priest and replaces him with Samuel the priest. Then the people reject God as king and the Lord puts over them another king and that king is Saul. And then the Lord rejects Saul and replaces him with David. And that's basically the structure of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel 1 to 8 has to do with Samuel. 1 Samuel 9 to 15 has to do with Saul. 1 Samuel 16 all the way to the end of 2 Samuel has to do with David. So those are the major characters. Now, for those of you who haven't been here, let me run through where we've gone during this series. Has anybody been here for the whole series? Not missed one? Okay, a few of you. Okay. So Genesis, from the beginning of creation up until the death of Joseph. Exodus, after the death of Joseph, until the construction of the temple at the Mount Sinai. Leviticus, all about the temple and Levites. Numbers, from Sinai up to the edge of the the promised land in the the plains of Moab. Deuteronomy, sermons that uh, Moses gave in the plains of Moab. Joshua, from the plains of Moab, crossing the river, taking the promised land. Judges, a period of of, of chaos during the time of the judges in the promised land. And the cry at the end of Judges is what? What was the cry? We need what? We need a king. We need a king. That's how Judges ends. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what should we expect the next book? We're jumping over Ruth for now. But what should we expect the next book to talk about? The king answering the cry of Judges. And that's exactly what we have. Now we start with Hannah. Hannah was the wife of Elkanah. And Hannah was one of a series of women, childless women, uh, in Scripture that bore a special son. Can you think of other childless women in Scripture who bore a special son? Can you think of any of them? 
We could start with Sarah, right? Sarah, Abraham's wife. And she eventually bore a special son who was Isaac. And then Isaac married Rebecca, and she was also childless. And then she bore two special sons. Uh, she bore Esau and Jacob. And then Jacob married Leah, but then he also he meant to marry Rachel, but he ended up marrying Leah first because of a trick that the father-in-law pulled on him. But then he married Rachel, and Rachel was also without child, and she bore two special sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And then we come to Hannah. Uh, actually, before Hannah, we could go, she's unnamed, but the wife of Manoah, we don't know her name, the wife of Manoah, she was barren, and she bore a special son named Samson, the last of the, the major judges that we looked at last week, and then we come to Hannah, and then we can go forward, fast forward to the New Testament, and we meet a woman named Elizabeth, and she was without child, and she bore a special son named John, we call him John the Baptist, And then the final one, she was without child, but for a different reason. She was without child, not because she was unable to conceive, but because she was a virgin. And her name was Mary, and she's the final in this line of uh, women without children who were eventually able to bear a special son, and his name was Jesus. Now, Hannah named her son Samuel. And that word Samuel, that name Samuel, sounds like Hebrew for heard of God, because she had called out to the Lord and she said, God heard, so I'm going to name him heard of God. And she also dedicated him to the Lord from his birth, from before his birth, and then eventually handed him over when he was quite young to Eli the priest to serve alongside him. Now, he's not called, if you go back to number six, there's a special six, there's a special vow that, uh, that, that Israelites could make, and it's the vow of the Nazarite. He's not called a Nazarite, but one of the things about the vow of the Nazarite is that they didn't cut their hair. Uh, like we saw with Samson, uh, he didn't cut his hair until someone else cut it off for him. But uh, it, he's not called, Samuel is not called a Nazarite, but he may have been a Nazarite because at least that part of the vow he was fulfilling. Now, Eli... Eli appears to be, so now we have this, this little boy, this little boy Samuel, and he's serving alongside Eli the priest at Shiloh. And Eli appeared to be a faithful priest. All that we can read about Eli, he seemed to be doing his job, he seemed to be faithful to the Lord. However, however, his sons were also priests, and they were scoundrels. They were scoundrels, and they were taking advantage of the priesthood. They were taking advantage of women. They were taking advantage of, uh, of the food, uh, the offerings that were brought, and eating them uh, as their own food. And um, so, God rejected Eli's house in favor of Samuel's house. If you look at chapter 2, chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, we'll pick up the story there. Uh, verse 31 You could go back, if you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 12, it said, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Tragic, isn't it? They were priests of the Lord, but it says, even though they were priests of the Lord, they did not know the Lord, and they acted like people who did not know the Lord. So if you jump forward to verse 31, it says here, Behold... 
here the Lord is, is speaking, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, speaking about Eli, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, these worthless priests, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. So he says to Eli, I will reject your house, your family, your house, and keep that in mind, we're going to see that word show up in Samuel a number of times, house. He rejects Eli's house, And he says, I will choose the house of another, the house of another, and he will serve as a faithful priest, and he will serve before my anointed one forever. Now, we get a word that comes from Hebrew, and uh, it's the word Messiah. And it comes from the, the Hebrew, which means the anointed one. So it says this faithful priest will serve before the anointed one, will serve before the Messiah forever. And uh, that's what happened. Um, Eli and his two sons died on the same day. Uh, Israel went to battle with the Philistines. And you remember the Philistines from Samson's time? Those were the, the arch enemies in the time of Samson, and they still were. They go to battle once again against the Philistines, and they take the ark. Now, we really didn't talk about the ark, but the ark was a box, and this was in the Holy of Holies, Uh, This was in the holiest place of the tabernacle. And the Lord met with His people over this ark. And they took the ark into battle thinking that could help them in battle. And what happened that day of battle is that the Philistines routed the Israelites, they captured the ark, and they killed Hophni and Phinehas, the two priests. The news gets back to Eli. Eli hears the news about his two sons, but even worse, even more distressing to him, was that the ark of the Lord had been captured He fell off his chair, he was an old man, and it said he was very overweight, and he broke his neck. And so, all three of them died on that same day. And Samuel, Samuel became the priest. And he served the Lord as priest and as judge of Israel. So, if you ask who was the last judge, really it wasn't Samson, really it was Samuel, because he served as this transitional character, uh, as a, a judge all the days of his life. If you look at chapter 17, I'm sorry, chapter 7, chapter 7, verses 15, um, 15 to 17, it says, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places, Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So he was judge, and he was priest in Israel. Now, we have something tragic here. We're seeing a repetition. If you look at chapter 8, it says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. So Eli had made his sons priests. They were worthless. They did not know the Lord. And it says here the name of, uh, when Samuel made his sons judges, the name of his firstborn son was Joel, the name of his second Abijah, they were judges in Beersheba. 
Verse 3, tragedy. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So this sets up a crisis in Israel. Samuel, like Eli, a faithful priest, and he was a faithful judge, but his sons did not walk in his ways. He could not pass this on in a hereditary way. And so, this is what happened. It was a crisis. Verse 4, Then all the, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Appoint for us a king. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so now they are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So here we have the second rejection. First rejection, God rejects Eli and chooses Samuel. The second rejection, the people, they think they're just rejecting Samuel's sons, don't they? But God says, effectively, they're not just rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me as king over them and asking for a king. Now, there's something of a tension here. Because, if you recall, if you were here for Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy, there are regulations about the future king. Regulations about the king. And so, uh, all the way back to Moses' time, it was anticipated and expected that Israel would eventually have a king. And then we saw last week in Judges. What's the argument of Judges? What do we need? We need a king. And so, why is this wrong when all of the people, all of a sudden the people do what was anticipated in Deuteronomy and do what was called for in Judges? What was wrong with their asking for a king? Well, if we look carefully at their petition, listen to what they said. They said this. They said, um, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Like all the nations. And then if you look down in verse 19... It says, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, so that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. It looks like that's the problem. The problem wasn't that they were eventually going to have a king. They needed a king. The problem was they wanted a king like what? like all the other nations had. They wanted to be just like all the other nations. And that was the constant problem with the people of Israel. Accommodating themselves to all the other nations around them. They wanted to be just like everybody else. And by the way, that's a constant problem for the people of God. Uh, Being willing or even wanting to look like everyone else and to accommodate ourselves to the way the nations do things. And God, as punishment, says to Samuel, okay, they don't want to obey me, 
They don't want to obey you. Well, Samuel, you obey them. Give them what they're asking for. Give them a king. Just like the one they're asking for. And so, God raises up Samuel. I'm sorry, Saul. God chooses Saul. And this is the, this is the second section. So, verse, uh, chapters 1 to 8, Samuel. Then in chapter 9, we have Saul. Now, Saul, Saul was a tall man. He was a head taller than everyone. He looked like a king. He was a handsome man. He could have played a king in a movie about being king. He looked like the part. And he was from the tribe of Benjamin, a respected tribe after they'd recovered from the debacle at the end of Judges. And Samuel anointed him with oil. So he became what? He became the Messiah. He became the anointed one of Israel. And if you look at chapter 10, verse 1, you see the job of the anointed one. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. So what's the anointed to do? What's the Messiah to do? To reign over them and to save them from their enemies. And and Saul began very well. He really began well. In fact, he was rather reluctant. He did not seek the kingship. He was not angling for it. Uh, He actually actually hid when they were trying to find him to anoint him. And uh, they couldn't hide. They said he's, he's, he's he's with the baggage. He was hiding with the suitcases. And so at first he was, he was humble and people insulted him and he didn't take it personally. He, he began his reign humbly and he began his reign courageously. And he did, he did lead Israel in battle to save them from several of their enemies. However, however, he was to fight a battle with the Philistines again in chapter 13. And Samuel said, Samuel said, now Samuel was what? He was a priest, so priests offer sacrifices. Saul was the king. Kings don't offer sacrifices. Uh, kings reign and save. And, uh, and he said, Samuel said, I will be there within a week. And so Saul was waiting for Samuel. He was waiting for Samuel, and he was waiting for Samuel to start the battle, and Samuel didn't show up, and Samuel didn't show up, and Samuel didn't show up. So on the seventh day, Saul says, people are getting nervous, and some of the, some of the, the troops were going AWOL. And so Saul took it upon himself to offer the sacrifice, the burnt offering before the Lord. And guess who shows up immediately after that? Samuel shows up right after Saul offers the sacrifice, and this is in uh, chapter 13, verse 8. Let's read what happened. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offerings. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, that you did not come within the days appointed, that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. 
And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God from which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after His own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over His people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So Saul lost the dynasty here. He could have had a lasting dynasty, but he lost the dynasty and God said, I will take it from you, your house, and I will give it to one who will do all that I command, who is after my own heart. Well, um, later, later, chapter 15, the Lord commissioned uh, Saul to fight against the Amalekites and he gave specific instructions about what to do. Do you remember in Jericho... Back in Joshua, uh, they were to fight against Jericho, to annihilate Jericho, and they were not to take any of the booty. They weren't to take any of the possessions, but one man did, and it brought disaster on the people. Well, here, same instructions. Fight the Amalekites, but don't take any of the booty. Well, they fought the Amalekites, they won the battle, Saul spared the king of the Amalekites, he was not supposed to do that, and they took the best of the flocks. Well, guess who shows up right after that? Samuel shows up once again. And Saul says, I've done what the Lord says. And Saul says, uh, Samuel says, excuse me, but what is this bleeding of animals, bleating of animals that I hear? And uh, Saul says, oh, oh yeah, that, that's the best of the flocks because we're going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, doesn't that sound pious? Doesn't that sound noble? That we're going to we're going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord, and that's why we kept all the best of the flocks. And then here we have the famous answer of Samuel to Saul. Uh, and Samuel said, "This is chapter fifteen, verse twenty-two." And Samuel said, "Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey." is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. What does the Lord want most of all? Obedience, not sacrifice. And then if you look down at verse 26, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So first of all, his dynasty was rejected because of his first sin. And then he himself was rejected as king because of this second sin. Now, tragically, tragically, uh, what happened to Saul was he became mentally unstable. And um, what God did is he sent Samuel to anoint someone else. He sent him to the house of Jesse from the tribe of Judah. Do you remember the book of Judges? It was calling not for a Benjamite king, but for a king from the tribe of Judah. And now Samuel goes. He anoints the youngest son of Jesse. His name is David. But he doesn't enter immediately immediately into uh, being king. He actually serves Saul for a time. Uh, he was the anointed. He was the Messiah. He was the chosen one. But he served in Saul's army. And there was that one incident that got him fame. Do you remember the incident about a really big guy named Goliath? Goliath? Well, there's that incident. He's anointed in chapter 16. In chapter 17, this young man 
this shepherd young man, he goes and he fights this, this most famous story about David, fights Goliath, wins the battle, and saves Israel. That's what the Messiah, the anointed one, is supposed to do, right? To save them from their enemies. Well, Saul is happy with this until he hears the, the ditties that the women have composed. And as they're going along, the women are singing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Now, that was not correct actually yet, but uh, he hadn't done that yet, but they were giving him credit, and Saul said, what? They're crediting him with tens of thousands and crediting me with only thousands? And so Saul became jealous of David, and he became more and more unstable mentally, and it's a tragedy to read his story. And uh, he made himself David's enemy. And, and continually tried to hunt down David and tried to, to kill David, uh, even though David would not lift his hand against Saul, even though he had opportunities to do so. Well, um, the end of the story of Saul is that Saul and his sons died in a battle with the Philistines. And then the tribe of Judah, and later all the tribes of Israel, made David their king. And now we're up to 2 Samuel, what we call 2 Samuel, chapters 2-5, through and David becomes king. David did a number of things. He conquered Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem had not yet been conquered and inhabited. It was one of those holdout cities. He conquered Jerusalem and made it the central place of worship. He also finished the conquest. Do you remember in Joshua there was that tension And then once again in Judges, there was that tension about, is the conquest finished or not? And we found out there was much still to be done. Look at chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So what did he do? Gave him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So finally, finally, the conquest is finished. Finally, finally, they have peace in the land. So David finished the work that Joshua had started. And so what he did was, the king said, verse 2, to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God, which by the way had been recovered, the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So, he says, I have my house established, I'm going to build a house for God. And uh, what happens here is God appears to Nathan, sends him back to David, and said, on the contrary. If we're talking about building houses, you are not going to build a house for me. I am going to build a house for you. And here we have the establishment of the covenant with David and his offspring. You see, Saul's offspring, Saul's house had been rejected. Now we have David's house, his family, his offspring being affirmed. If you look at, we'll keep reading here, uh, verse 4, That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people out of uh, of Israel uh, from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent. And he talks about, he said, I've never commanded anybody to build me a house. 
Then he says, verse 8, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. So what's the deal here? David says, I'm going to do something for the Lord. I'm going to build him a house. And God turns it around and says, no, I'm going to do all this for you. I took you, I made you king, I will establish you, I will bid you a house. And speaking of the house that you want to build for me, your son will do it. Yeah, the house will get built, but you're not going to do it. Your son will do it. I'm going to build you a house. And what he did here is he established a dynasty for David. That there would always be a descendant of David to reign on the throne. So far, so good, right? It looks like all the promises that we've seen... From Genesis all the way through, they're fulfilled. They're in the land. They're a great people, a great name. They have peace. God is in the midst of them. And now they have a dynasty, a king after God's own heart. And he was. He was a king after God's own heart. But if we keep reading, we find that even David had feet of clay. And we find that he had many wives... And he had many mistresses as well, concubines. And in spite of that, there are a couple of, uh, of, of big stains on David's record. And the first one has to do with a woman. It was in the spring when the kings go out to war and David stayed in Jerusalem. He de- wasn't doing what kings were supposed to do. And he noticed a woman named Bathsheba. Bathsheba happened to be married to one of David's mighty men one of his most faithful soldiers, who was a foreigner, a Hittite, who had joined himself to the people of God and fought and and was, was risking his life for David and for Israel. And David took Bathsheba, and uh, then she became pregnant, and then David wanted to cover up his sins, so he invited Uriah from the front, and he said, Uriah, how's things going on the front? And Uriah gave a report, and he said, Go, be with your wife. But Uriah, because of his faithfulness, refused to go and to be with his wife. David tried getting him drunk, and that didn't work. And because he could not cover up this sin, he sent with Uriah's own hand a message back to Joab, the commander, saying, when you attack the city, put some men up front and then withdraw from them. Put Uriah the Hittite up front. And Uriah obeyed, and Uriah fell by the hand of the enemies. And so what God did was He punished David by punishing his house. And He said to David, The sword will never depart from your house because you used the sword of the enemies to strike down Uriah and to take his wife. The sword will never depart from your house. And when we keep reading in Second Samuel, we find that the rest of the story of David's family was a story of 
intra-family conflict. We have the terrible story of one of his sons violating one of his daughters, his own half-sister. And then we find that the full brother of that violated daughter uh, took vengeance upon that half-brother and struck him down. And then we find that 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 son rose up in rebellion against David and, and formed a coup against his own father that had to be put down militarily and that son was slain in battle. And so the sword fell into David's house and to David's family. And by the way, if we're looking for a moral lesson from the book of Samuel... Uh, perhaps the strongest one that jumps out to us, uh, jumps out to those of us who are parents. Because we have three men who were very successful in their jobs, who were very faithful in the jobs that God had called them to do. We could even say they were very successful in their, in their vocations, in their ministries. We have Eli, we have Samuel, and we have David. But they were failures. As fathers, they took care of their callings outside the home, but they did not take care of their callings inside the home. But in contrast to them, we have one shining example of a parent, in this case, a mother, who understood that children are a gift from the Lord. And we are, as Hannah did, from before her child was born. We are to dedicate our children to the Lord and bring them constantly to the Lord that the Lord might take care of them and guide them on their path. There was, toward the end of David's life, one other spot on his reputation. He called for a census of the troops of Israel. And you think, that doesn't sound like an unusual thing for a commander to do. How many troops do I have? But he didn't need to do that. Because God was the one who gave victory, not numbers of troops. And the only reason to call for a census of the troops was to to inflate his own ego as king. to, To build himself up, that he was commander of so many, it was unnecessary because God was the one who gave the victory and he had done so time and time again for David. But nonetheless, David called for this census of the troops and it was partially done, and then David realized his folly, but he realized it too late, and God gave him three options as punishment. And now we're all the way at the end of 2 Samuel, we're in chapter 24, verse 10. It says, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. But Gad came, to, so Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before the foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Now think about those three. Three years of famine would affect whom? Everyone. 
uh, three years of David fleeing before his enemies would affect David. And three days of pestilence in the land would affect everyone. So two of the options would affect everyone. One of the options would affect David. Let's see David's answer. Verse 14, Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. What's he saying? I don't want option two. I don't want the option that would fall upon me and bring me into the hands of my enemies. And so that left the other two options. And God brought the third option upon the people. A pestilence that fell upon the land, a plague that fell upon the land, and as a result, 70,000 people died from the north to the south. Belatedly, belatedly, David recognized his error. If you go down to verse 17, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep... What have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. But it was too late to turn back. He had sacrificed the sheep instead of himself. Now, this brings us to the end of the story. And the final end of the story is that David builds an altar to the Lord on the place where the plague was stopped And later his son would build the temple on that place where David built that altar. But that's for the next piece of the story. So let's look back over the books that we've studied so far and see that we have finally in place the three offices of the Old Testament. Back in uh, in Genesis, or rather back in Deuteronomy, we have uh, the, the prophet Moses and the promise that God would raise up a prophet for the people of Israel like Moses. Do you remember that? He said, I will raise up a prophet like me. You shall listen to him. And we saw that in the New Testament, who that prophet is. That prophet that God raised up like Moses is Jesus. And then we look at the priesthood and we've seen the priesthood described in Leviticus and exemplified in Aaron and exemplified in uh, Samuel. And we also saw in the New Testament that we have Jesus is the one who fulfilled everything that the priests were supposed to be. He not only functioned as priest, he functioned as sacrifice and offered himself in sacrifice for our sins. And now we have the third of the three offices of the Old Testament. We have the office of king. And we have that promise to David that a son of David would always reign upon the throne. But we have a problem when we come to the Old Testament. Guess what is not happening at the end of the Old Testament? There is not a son of David reigning on the throne. What happened to that promise? Well, we have that promise also fulfilled, like the prophet, like the priest. We have it fulfilled in Jesus. And the opening lines, the opening lines of the New Testament are of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Jesus the Christ. And so we have Jesus, the prophet, Jesus, the priest, Jesus, the king, reigning over us to do what? What are kings supposed to do? Kings are supposed to reign, and they are supposed to save. And that's what Jesus does for 
us. In the next sermon in this series, we will look at the kings. Those are the next books that are coming up. But I want to just end by noting a difference between King David and King Jesus, his greater son. In both of David's notorious sins, what did he do? What did he do in the case of Uriah? And what did he do in the case of the people after the census? In the case of Uriah, he sacrificed his people to save himself. In the case of after the census, he chose the option that would sacrifice the sheep to save the shepherd. And here we have the great contrast. In King Jesus, we have the king who did not sacrifice the people to save himself, but rather the king sacrificed himself to save his people. And let's pray. Our God, we thank You for King Jesus, for Prophet Jesus, and for Priest Jesus. We find all the books that we've studied so far summed up in Him. Jesus, our Prophet, who declares to us Your will. Jesus, our Priest, who offers Himself for our sins. Jesus, our King, who reigns over us and saves us from all His and our enemies. And we pray, O God, that we would, uh, even as Samuel called us to do, even as You call us to do, Heed the voice of the King, for to obey is better than sacrifice. And we pray, O God, as we move out into our lives this week, that it would be obvious that those of us who believe in Christ would not be like the other nations, but that we would be subjects of the King, saved by Him and His representatives on this earth. And we pray this in His name. Amen.